Good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan, if I haven't had the privilege to meet you yet. And I work as a science teacher here in Launceston. Um, my wife and I joined the branch about 18 months ago. And believe it or not, take this as you will, it was the first service, it was, it was the service when Carl said, I'm out, I'm leaving. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's my privilege to explain a part of God's word today. Now, which book does Jesus quote the most? Does anyone want to have a guess? The Psalms? Yep. Deuteronomy? Yeah. Any other guesses? So this is a uh, timeline of the whole Bible from creation to new creation, the history of what's happening in God's plan. Deuteronomy is in fact the book that he quotes the most and you might have figured that out. Uh, now where is Deuteronomy in this plan? It is here. So we see it's well before Jesus on, uh, our, on your right and the stories of uh, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, they happen on the left. Um, now, who here is currently reading Deuteronomy? We've got one. Okay, now, fair enough if you're not currently reading Deuteronomy. Out of all the books in the Bible, let alone the Old Testament, it's probably not the first one you would go to. If you were to flick through it, you'll see that there are a lot of laws. Now, this might seem unimportant, but I'm here to tell you today that those laws are super important. In fact, those laws and Deuteronomy as a whole set up how God and his covenant people, covenant just means like promise, contracts. The Bible says marriage is a covenant. So God and his covenant people are going to interact. That theme, those ideas are then carried through the whole rest of the Old Testament and then they overlap well and truly into the New Testament. The, when I was getting ready for this sermon, um, the scholars were saying, this book is the backbone of the whole Bible. So I'd expect a few more to start reading it after this. Now, does anyone remember a story before Deuteronomy in the book of Genesis with God making promises to Abraham? Can anyone here list what God promised Abraham? Many descendants. Many descendants. By the way, there are about four things. Land. land. He's going to have land. So he's one dude. And he says, I'm going to multiply you as many as the stars. You're going to have land. That's the first two. Any blessings to all nations? Very good. Excellent, yeah. So the four things that they'll get their own land, currently it was one dude without his own land, that there'll be as many as the stars from one family to a whole nation, that they'll have God's blessing upon them and that that blessing is going to flow out into the world. So where we're up to today is that Moses, who comes after Abraham, hundreds of years after Abraham, has... Um, uh, they are standing on the edge of the promised land. So this is the first promise, that they would have their own land. They're literally standing on the border of it, and they're about to jump in. It looks like God's promise has been fulfilled. 
But God has something very important to say to his chosen people first. I'm going to invite Trudy up and then we will crack into it. Reading this morning is from Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 to 6, verse 15 to 19, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 to 10. I will repeat it while I'm reading. If you haven't got a Bible but you would like to read with me, there are Bibles on the back table with a little bookmark in it to find it easily. So we start with Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 to 6. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commandments I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. We go to verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, do not carefully carefully follow all his commandments and decrees I have given you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Go to chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. If you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, From there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on the enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I'm giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law, and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Thank you, Trudy. Please keep your Bibles open or your phone app open. We're going to be between chapter 28, 29, and 30, and going between them there. 
Let me pray for us now as we come and look at this part of God's Word. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for freedom to read and teach it and think about it um, in Australia. Please be with me. Give me wisdom. Give me courage. Please change our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Choices, choices, choices. Good choices, bad choices. Every day, we need to make choices. Now, there is not a better place that I know of to see this than in a grade nine science classroom. Let alone when I ask students to do group work, to make their own groups. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe the class are making videos like documentaries about athletes and the body systems involved in their sport. Or maybe they're making a poster about the discovery of the atom. What's involved is that the group will have to work together, separate the task, research components, put it together and submit it on time to get good grades. And I want to give them the opportunity to do this, to show that they can work well together, make good choices, and do their work well and focus. But the teacher gut instinct in me knows exactly what groups they're going to make. I know they are not going to be conducive to any work. A lot of time will be wasted. They'll be on Minecraft. They'll be just mucking around, flicking rubber bands across the room. And I tell you what, it's going to end up with somehow a glass science beaker getting smashed, even though it's unrelated to the task, and they'll be in at lunch, cleaning it up, writing apology letters to me, guaranteed. They know what they should do, and they have the opportunity to do it, but they don't, and they don't want to. As a teacher, I wish students would love to love learning, but I don't have that power as a teacher. I can give them all the encouragement uh, and incentives and reminders and examples as I want, but something's got to happen in the hearts of those students for them to want to love learning. You'll need more than rules and regulations and reminders and uh, the threat of discipline for them to make good choices and do the right thing. And if that doesn't happen, then the best case scenario is that they're going to keep the rules coldly out of obligation and uh, not wanting to stay in at lunch. Now this can be a pretty good picture of our relationship with God sometimes. Sometimes we know what we should do, but it can feel like a burden that we know the right choice, but sometimes, like when you wake up on a Sunday morning, you might think, oh, can I really be bothered going to church today? Sometimes when I, I, I like to do some exercise before work during the week um, and I can wake up and go, man, I would love to just go for a really long bike ride then carve out some time to sit in Bible reading and prayer before the Lord and grow that relationship. It's pretty tempting to go for that bike ride. And what did you think of with our new prayer meeting time? 9am. There goes my Sunday morning. Being a Christian can feel like a living by the rules relationship with God. 
And if you're not a Christian here, maybe that's your impression of what Christians and Christianity is about. Keeping rules, cold, dry duty, external adherence, doing things because Christians have to do them, not because we want to. That there's no bone in our body that actually wants to obey God. Yet, we know it shouldn't be like this. We know that we want more than a living by the rules relationship with God. We long for a deep, true, authentic love for God. That happens naturally. Now, in our three chapters today, we see Israel have the same need. Now, the story so far and the promises that have been fulfilled by God to Abraham so far at are that the nation of Israel has grown in slavery in Egypt. What happened as one family going into Egypt, they have multiplied out of control. If you know the story of Exodus, it's, going, it's gone absolute ballistic. They keep having kids. The Egyptians don't know what to do. So he's fulfilled that promise to Abraham. God then rescues them from slavery. But then they instantly turn their back on them, on him rather. So God judges them. He's like, all right, this is, this is too far. You're going to have 40 years of wandering around the desert and we'll see how it is once that generation is passed on. And now it's come to that time, 40 years, and they're standing on the edge of the promised land. So this is that first um, promise to Abraham. They're about to receive the fulfillment that was made hundreds of years earlier. And they've just listened to Moses talk about the first 20 chapters in Deuteronomy. What are they? They're laws. So Moses has said, this is how God wants you to live for 20 chapters. And they've agreed. They've said, yes, okay, we're going to live that way. And now they're about to head in. And the choice is theirs. Are they going to live as God's people in God's land? Or are they going to live as all the other nations around them? What is their relationship with God going to be like? And what is their heart going to be like? This is a big choice with massive consequences. If they choose to obey God, they will be blessed. If they choose to disobey God, they will be cursed. Let's kick off in the first chapter. We're looking at today, chapter 28. Please turn with me. And we're going to, the blessings are found in verse 1 to 14. We're just going to read the first six verses again. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land, and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you go in, and blessed when you go out. So we can see that if Israel obey God's laws, they will get God's blessing, the third promise to Abraham. They will experience conditions for the land, life uh, for the life in the land, met and maintained. They will work hard and see their effort actually rewarded. They will have rest from their enemies. The Lord will make them prosperous in food, 
livestock and children more so than in Egypt, right? They won't be in debt to any nations. And if they live as God's chosen people, they'll have life to the full. It will be amazing. The picture painted here of life in the promised land is like life in a new garden of Eden. God's creation restored. But that won't be the only promise being fulfilled here if they obey God. We see in Exodus, this is a bit before, still with Moses, um, but God is talking to the people of Israel. He says to them, Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, there's that word again, covenant, contract, promise, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, if Israel obey God, they will be a kingdom of priests. Now, what do priests do? They represent a deity to the people who worship it. So, God to the kingdom of Israel. And what does it say here? If they obey God, they'll be a kingdom of priests. Everyone will be a priest. So, what's going on here is that if Israel obey God... The whole world is going to get to meet God through Israel. Everybody wins if Israel obeys God. Everyone will be able to come to Israel, to Jerusalem, and meet God face to face. Let's keep reading. We're now on to the curses. Starting at, uh, so this section, for your own Bible reading, uh, is from verse 15 to 68. As you can see, four times the number of verses then the blessings, and you'll get the point in the sec. Uh, we're going to read starting from verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land, and the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you go in, and cursed when you go out. And we're going to jump forward to verse 64. Then the Lord will scatter you amongst all nations, from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have ever known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. If Israel does not obey God, they will be cursed. If they don't live his way, they're going to wear away at their relationship with him. Many of these curses, which we've looked at, and the other ones I'll highlight in a sec, just highlight how hard and difficult it was living in the ancient world. Planting food but not getting to eat it. Getting sick. Dust falling from the sky instead of rain. Serving other nations. And things done to them which are frankly R-rated and too uh, gross to speak of here today. In essence, God is warning his people about the opposite of the blessed life. Total human woe. I've termed these, the JG uh, term here is the Abrahamic curses, the opposite of the Abrahamic blessings, 
the, uh, the promises undone. If they keep up their disobedience, we see here that the Lord will scatter them among all nations. There will be an end when he stops putting up with their disobedience. They will end up in exile, just like Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden initially. And what will be the effect on the nations if they disobey? Well, it will be like Israel is a drunk Australian ambassador at a big world NATO conference. Australian ambassadors are supposed to be there representing Australia. People want to go up and meet, hear what Australia's policies are. And he's there just flannering about, loose as goose, off his chops. This is what Israel will be if they disobey. They'll be failing to represent God to the world. So what will happen to the nations? They will live in idolatry. The nations will keep living in ignorance. They're not going to get to meet God. Everyone loses out if Israel disobey and get cursed. You see, the curses to Israel are like a warning sign. You know when you put your hand on a hot stove, you feel the heat, so you pull it away? Or I was driving on the highway yesterday, uh, you start veering off because you're tired, but there's a little speed bumps on the highway. So you turn off and it's like, and it reminds you to pull back in. This is what the curses are about. They're supposed to make the Israelites turn to each other and go, why are we getting smashed? What's going on? Oh, we're in sin. We need to obey God. But if they don't, they will crash. They will end up in exile, scattered among all nations. God will actually end the covenant with them. So the big question mark is then, how are they going to live? What will Israel's relationship with God be like when they get there? What will their heart be like? Now, this is where we get to chapter 29, the plea. So Moses now shifts. He's talked about the blessings and the curses. He makes an impassioned plea for them to obey. Here's the section from verse 2 to verse 9. He reminds them of what they've done, of what God's done for them. And then, yeah, remember, uh, reminds them of how they disobeyed him initially. And then verse 9, the one I've underlined here, I'll read it out, is the key verse. Carefully follow the terms of this commandment so that you may prosper in everything. So Moses knows he's not going to be there to lead them into the land. Why? Because he was actually partly responsible for the sin of Israel. So God's punishment on him, judgment on him, was that he won't get to see the promised land. But he knows what the Israelites are like. Just like I know my grade 9 students, he knows what the Israelites are like. And he knows they're going to probably stuff up. So he says, please, please obey the Lord your God. How do you expect the Israelites and humanity to live? Do you expect humans to live well or poorly? Do you think humans are inherently good or inherently selfish? Now, this guy, Jacob Needleman, he's a secular, not a Christian, philosopher over in America. 
He says, so he's been thinking about this for decades without a Christian worldview frame of reference to guide his thoughts. He says that everyone basically knows how they should live. If you ask the average dude on the street, they know how they should live, right? But they just can't do it. And they just won't do it. And Jacob, he wrote this book, Why Can't We Be Good? He says, this is the biggest mystery of the human race. That humans know how they should live, but they just can't do it. Now, according to the book of Deuteronomy, it is not a mystery. Moses knows exactly why. It's because our hearts, are consistent, we can make consistently bad choices. Our hearts are no good. We now come to the last section of our passage today. New hearts. Moses says we need God to give us a new heart. So you flick with me to chapter 30. The problem with Israel is that they were never going to be obedient. They were going to be inherently disobedient because their hearts were inherently disobedient. Now, in this next section, this is mind-blowing. Um, okay, my underlines aren't there. That's okay. I'll point it out. As I read this, I want you, there's two words which should be if, right? But instead, Moses says when. Let me read it out to you and you'll, you'll see what I mean. So, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations and when... You and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you back from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord will gather you back, gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Now take a sec. I want you to think about why the word when in verse 1 and when in verse 2 is unusual. Now, it should be if. But what's going on here is that God is giving Moses a prophetic vision, a, a prophetic moment, that Moses knows the hearts. He's not saying, if you disobey and then get exiled. He's saying, look, guys, when you disobey and you get exiled, God is not going to leave it there. Um, Israel's disobedience is not the end of their story. God will bring about their restoration. This is a moment of pure and unnecessary grace from God. He promises restoration to his people, even when he says, look, you're going to disobey and abandon my covenant. This is like an engaged couple. We have one or two here. An engaged couple before they get married, where one person says to the other, and they go, look, I know you're going to commit adultery with that person over there, but even if you do, I'll accept you back. Do you see how unnecessary it is? It's unnecessary grace. The fact that 
Uh, and this is what the book, a bit of school holiday fun reading, the book of Hosea. If you haven't read the book of Hosea before, this is exactly what it's about. God's prophet Hosea um, tells Hosea to marry a prostitute, and it's just a picture of God and his people. It's mind-blowing, the grace has for, uh, God has for his people. So that's exactly what that book is about. So God's blessings will flow eventually. In the end, his people will be blessed. And they will be blessed because God will fix the problem himself. God will fix the problem with our hearts and Israel's hearts. Now, this is the next key verse. I've left you on the edge of your seats here. Verse 6. This is the verse of the whole book of Deuteronomy. This is the apex. The Lord will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants that you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So God is promising here to fix their hearts, to circumcise their hearts. You see, something far deeper was needed than the circumcision of the lower regions of male Israelites for Israel to live right with God. That just wasn't enough. Cutting off a bit of skin for all the dudes just did not fix the problem. God is promising to do something in their hearts that would enable his people not just to keep the law, but to want to keep the law, to love God so much that they wouldn't do anything else but keep the law. Listen to Romans chapter 2. This is written after Jesus. A person is not a Jew, that is, a person of God, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code, which is Deuteronomy. What does it mean to have a circumcised heart? It is a metaphor for God doing surgery on your heart. Circumcision was a sign of external obedience for Israel to entering into the covenant promised relationship with God. But heart circumcision is the inner love to obey God. To think of another metaphor, think of the difference between a business marriage and a love marriage. Now, over the years, there have been plenty of business or political marriages between kingdoms, between businesses to do deals where the knot was tied, but there was no love. But when I got to know Damaris, I was in love. Her wish was my command. Before I met her, I was growing my hair out. She's like, JG, that hair's getting pretty long. I was at the barber that afternoon. She's like, man, those clothes are pretty unflattering. They're pretty baggy. I was at Oxford that weekend buying slim shirts. You should see, I actually gave my shirts to my housemate. Because he's like, poor Povo. I'm like, do you want my shirts? Like, I'm not allowed to wear them anymore. <laughs> now, I didn't think of her requests as obeying her or submitting to her will, right? But I kind of was. Um, she wasn't demanding anything, but out of love, I was changing that thing in my life. 
Now that's exactly what it means to have a circumcised heart with God. What you ought to do and what you want to do are the same thing. But how do we get this circumcised heart? Do we have to go down to the LGH and book it in? Well, we call God's covenant relationship with Israel the Old Covenant. And this is because when Jesus comes in, he brings a new covenant, a new way of God relating to his people. And it's not just the Old Covenant revived, it's totally new. You see, Jesus' life mirrored the history of the people of Israel. Jesus lived how Israel should have He followed God's laws perfectly and actually had a pure heart. He did what Israel couldn't. Jesus suffered the curses of the covenant on the cross so that you and I and Israel didn't have to. The fact that he rose again actually proves that he had a pure heart, that nothing he did was sinful or wrong because there was nothing for death, which was the result of sin, to cling to him. Paul writes about this to the Galatians. This is a follower of Jesus after Jesus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. It is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a pole. That's the cross. When Jesus keeps the law on Israel's behalf, he brings the blessings of the law in Deuteronomy. Now the whole world can come to get to know God because Jesus has lived that life perfectly, which Israel was supposed to live. So the gospel message now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The gospel message was, come to Israel. Gospel just means good news. The good news was, come to Israel, come to Jerusalem, meet God. And now it is, come to Jesus. Through his spirit, Jesus has given us a new heart, one that makes it possible to actually love and obey God and actually mean it. This means that I'm going to actually want to grow my relationship with God every day through Bible reading and prayer, so I'm going to carve out that time every morning instead of sinking it into doing bike riding or whatever else I'd prefer to do. Because I love God. For the church, my family here at the branch, do you long for more than a living by the rules relationship with God? It is extremely possible that you've been sitting here for years, coming back again and again to church, obeying God with outward actions, but you don't love him with your heart. It's common. You need to check yourself. You need to ask yourself that question. If that is you, then you don't have the Spirit of God in you. We need to pray that God's Spirit would do that supernatural work in our hearts, that he would do what only he can do to produce true and genuine spiritual life in us. Pray that the Holy Spirit will make you more like God bit by bit, day by day, that he would change your heart 
that he would cut away whatever is hard and resistant in your heart. Pray to God that his spirit would write his word, the Bible, his desires on your heart. Pray that he would help you soak yourself in his word, that you would love what God loves and desire what he desires, that the choices that you make would be what God wants you to make. So that obeying God would not just be a cold, dry duty, but something out of love, love for God. We're actually going to have some time after this for personal prayer, so you can think about that. Now, if you're not a Christian here, perhaps you think of Christianity as a burden. You see it as a cold, heavy burden of rule-keeping and duty. But a relationship with God with God is not about rule keeping it's a relationship it's about love it's about the heart and it's about your heart you see if you're not a Christian the Bible says your heart is currently sick even dead you are living in idolatry and ignorance just like the nations were with Israel You're chasing after things that won't satisfy you. Experiences, family, stability, the Australian dream, money, purpose, pleasure. Come to Jesus. He will show you God. He will do what Israel was supposed to do, but they minced it up. He can actually give you the full, unaltered blessing of God. And it will be incredible. It will be beyond your wildest dreams. Whatever you've been striving for, it will be found in God's blessing. Jesus will give you a new heart. So that what you ought to do and what you want to do will be the same thing. Back to my grade 9 science class. We had students whose heart were not in it. If they handed in any work at all, it was due to the threat of a detention. But then, there were students who just love it. They love school. It's their place to thrive. They love being there. They love science. We call this state flow, where work doesn't feel like work. And as Christians, we feel the tug between our new heart, which loves God, and our old heart, which loves sin. We desire to be in that flow state with God. But God's promises in Jesus is that he's in the business of changing our hearts. And one day in heaven, the job will be done. Jesus, the great heart surgeon, not at the LGH, but at God's hospital in heaven, will stand back from the operating table and say... Job complete. On that day when we cross over into heaven, we will love God with all our mind, all our soul, all our heart, and all our strength. On that day when Jesus returns, we will truly love and obey God. Amen.